Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 20th Century Movie Club. This episode is volume two, and once again, I am joined by my friend, Mike. How are things today? Things are good, Dana. How are you today? Uh, you know, things are great. Uh, we're recording this on Sunday. It is uh, division playoff day, or excuse me, it is championship playoff day in the NFL. I'm a big football fan. I think longtime listeners will know that uh, my team, the New England Patriots, is playing today. And uh, by the time this episode is released, I'll either be very excited or very disappointed. And as much as I love you, I'm kind of rooting for you to be disappointed. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I think that a good 95% of the country is going to be right there with you. <laughs> so, uh, But listen, before we get started with uh, this week's selections, we both had a little bit of homework to do. And in my case, I had to sit down and watch Real Genius. And I'm not going to spend too much time on it because I know we've got six movies to cover today, but I will say this. One, absolutely hilarious. Two, what I was really... I was really struck by the set design in this movie. I mean, this is, again, this is 1985. There, there are some special effects, nothing CGI, but just the, the attention to detail in almost every shot, from the dorm rooms to the, the labs they visit, everything, I was just really impressed with the set design. And I, I, the one thing I was thinking about, if, if I was watching this movie when it came out, I would say to myself, boy, that Val Kilmer, he... He's going to be a huge star. He's going to have a career that's going to last 30 years and beyond. Now, I'm not 100% sure that that came true, but he is so damn charismatic and affable in this movie. I was, uh, I was delighted to watch the film. So great recommendation. I'm glad you liked it. It's, it is really disappointing that Kilmer didn't do more comedies. I mean, he did this and he did one that we may talk about on the show later on, Top Secret. He has such a deft comic touch and he's so likable when he's being that kind of of comedy character and then you know there's been some long you know stories especially island of dr moreau about how he was to work with and it is kind of too bad because i really the val kilmer that was in real genius is a val kilmer i would have liked to have seen a lot more of right right and you mentioned top secret and i'm sure that's gonna make it on the uh on the 20th Century Movie Club at some time because that is an often overlooked film. It's a movie that kind of gets lost in between Airplane and The Naked Gun. And I think it's absolutely hilarious. I agree 100%. So you had some homework to do as well. So you watched Three O'Clock High for the first time. So you, I did. You told me, you texted me and said, I watched it, but I'm going to save my thoughts until we're recording. So I have not heard your thoughts. So the floor is yours. First of all, uh, I, I want to say I, I did like it. I liked it. I, I thought there was a lot of good. And I also want to say, since I know you do have a personal relationship with the director, that I, I love Phil. I think State of Grace is brilliant. And I've watched Dirty Laundry more than is healthy for any human <laughs> being to watch a 10-minute Punisher short. Um, I liked it. I thought it was funny. The one thing I wanted out of it what really resonated for me with the movie was the more surreal kind of absurdist uh, elements of the movie. And I wanted to see it go a little farther in that direction. The The scene where he tries to, uh, without going into too many details, he tries to hit, <clears throat> excuse me, hit on his teacher. And it's very clearly an homage to Risky Business, complete with the Tangerine Dream music in the background. I was on the floor during that scene. You know, he's got the sunglasses on and stuff. And then it just, there were other parts where I felt like it wasn't quite going far enough. But right. it's a it's a minor nitpick. I, I thought the movie was very entertaining. I did laugh my ass off several times in the movie. Um, surprisingly, I thought Richard Tyson was 
one of the most compelling parts of the movie. Uh, and I did kind of want to spend a little more time with him because he's clearly got this whole there's this whole backstory with him and 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 all these layers to that that are only kind of there a little bit in the movie. But I did enjoy it overall. I'm glad that you recommended it. So it gave me an excuse to watch it. Excellent. Excellent. And I, I hope listeners out there will really seek the movie out because it's I think the the best way to describe it, it's a very unique uh, high school comedy in a decade that had numerous high school comedies. It, it is very different than uh, your average high school comedy. I've also got to give a shout out. It was filmed in Ogden, Utah at Ogden High. I always like any movie that's filmed in Utah, especially one that I can clearly tell is Utah. So that always makes me happy. Excellent. See, that's a little piece of information I didn't know. So, and as much as Phil and I have talked about that, I don't think we've ever talked about the actual filming locations. I just immediately assumed that it was filmed in, in California. So that is new information. So I appreciate that. I think this week I will kick it off. So I'll start with my first pick. Now, the three movies that I've selected today are vastly different from each other. Two, I think, are very well received by critics. One has a Rotten Tomato score of 20%, and I'm going to save that one for the last pick of the day. But for my first pick of the day, I want to go with a Jack Ryan movie. Now, there has been several iterations of the Jack Ryan, the Tom Clancy CIA analyst character. Uh, he, of course, debuted in uh, 1990s The Hunt for Red October, a movie that was directed by John McTiernan, and Alec Baldwin played the titular character. But I'm going to talk about 1992's Patriot Games as my first pick of the week, because this one, I think, kind of gets lost between The Hunt for Red October and Clear and Present Danger. And this movie offers, I think, a little bit more than both of those films. And part of that is because of all the Tom Clancy films that have been made, this is the only one that is R-rated. And that was an interesting direction to take the series, because if you read the Tom Clancy novels that involve Jack Ryan, it's very much R-rated material. So Hunt for Red October was a very popular film, did very well, and when they decided to do a follow-up to it, of course, Harrison Ford was recast in the role. And let's be honest, he owned that role. I really think that this film is often overlooked in the series. Uh, quick synopsis of the film. Harrison Ford, of course, plays Jack Ryan. He is visiting London on vacation with his family. He foils an IRA terrorist plot. And I don't want to say more than that, except that Sean Bean is in the film. And that's all you need to know. Just waited on in like John Wayne. I couldn't just stand there and watch him shoot those people. There was an incident near a ferry port on the English Channel. The Brits were moving Sean Miller from Albany Prison to the Isle of Wight. He escaped. There's never been a terrorist attack on American soil, Jack. These men are professionals. Personal revenge rarely plays into it. But I killed his brother. Your nose and why didn't belong. And now you've killed my baby brother. Operator, I want to make an emergency breakthrough. 
what about my daughter? Let's uh, let's sit down for a moment. No, talk to me. He's never gonna let us go, is he? I don't care what you have to do. You just get him. What are your I, thoughts on Patriot Games? I haven't seen Patriot Games in a very long time, but I do quite enjoy the movie. I agree with pretty much everything you said. Um, I think Harrison Ford, uh, this is really kind of sort of the start of that uh, Harrison Ford part of his career where it's, you know, don't take my daughter kind of Harrison Ford. And he's never better at that role than he is in Patriot Games. He's so good in this movie. It was a big change. Uh, if you saw Hunt for Red October, it was kind of a big change going from the young sort of roguish Alec Baldwin in that movie to the the older Harrison Ford version. But I think it works and it works because Jack Ryan's such a character that, you know, in the books and I'm not a huge fan of the Tom Clancy books, but I've read a good portion of them. Uh, you know, Jack Ryan has a 20, 30 year story arc. And so you can have these movies take place at sort of different points in the timeline. And, and as far as the sort of action and the tension and stuff goes in, in Patriot Games, I think it moves. I think it moves a lot better than Clear and Present Danger. Clear and Present Danger is a little bloated uh, for me. And it's got some some great supporting cast. Uh, if I recall correctly, Ann Archer plays his wife in it. That That's correct. Uh, and then Richard Harris has a supporting role in it. There's a lot of good supporting roles and characters in that movie. So I think it's a good recommendation. I like it a lot. Yeah. And this is th this one I would put more as a thriller than an action film. I mean, there are some really good action set pieces. They're kind of few and far between. But there's a real suspenseful element to this because, again, I don't want to get too much into spoilers, especially if anyone hasn't seen it. He thwarts this terrorist attack and then the IRA decides, well, they're going to go after him. The ending... Uh, set piece is, is pretty fantastic as well. I, I always want to shift the thought and the discussion because, you know, I think Hunt for October is a, just a phenomenal film. And that is a, that's a stay tuned for a deep dive history look at that one. Uh, Clear and Present Danger, I'm going to agree with you that it is, I think you used the great term there, it is bloated. I think it does have some very interesting scenes. The, um, and spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, the scene where they, um, send the laser guided missile to take out essentially the entire, infrastructure of the the cartel i think that is just an incredibly tense scene but it does drag a little bit but my question to you is what about the sum of all fears when we get ben affleck taking over the role what are your thoughts on that movie so i haven't seen the sum of all fears since i saw it in the theater so i i, I my memory is going to be a bit fuzzy on it. What I remember thinking is I, as a, as I generally liked the movie. I didn't, I had read the book. I didn't love the story. I, I think it's, it's definitely a step down from Red October, Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger. Um, you start to see a lot more of the things that I didn't resonate with when it comes to Tom Clancy. I do think that Affleck is better, like most things, he's better in that movie than he's given credit for. Uh, it was at the start of kind of his down first of many sort of up and down slopes in his career. And I think it's hard to follow up Harrison Ford. And I like that they did different. They went, we're going to go back. We're going to make this a prequel, even though in the books it's a sequel. And, and we're going to make a young Jack Ryan. 
I think their instincts were right. The problem is they they clearly still can't seem to make that work because we've now had two more young Jack Ryan movies or I guess one movie, one TV show. The Chris Pine one didn't click with people. Like apparently I haven't watched the Amazon, the, the John Krasinski series. Apparently that's pretty good. But I think Some of All Fears is a good, not great movie. It's probably one that could stand to be reevaluated a bit, but I don't know that it's going to have a ton of impact if, if somebody were to rewatch it. Excellent. All right. Excellent. So I will turn it over to you for your first selection of the day. So my first pick today was was actually inspired by Three O'Clock High because I was saying I wanted a bit more of that surreal, absurdist humor. And so my first recommendation is actually going to be 1985's Better Off Dead. Uh, directed by uh, the woefully underappreciated Savage Steve Holland. Bit of a quick plot synopsis. Uh, John Cusack plays a guy by the name of Lane Meyer, whose girlfriend dumps him for the captain of the ski team. Uh, He then proceeds to go through a bout of serious but hilarious depression, not making light of depression, but this movie is absolutely hilarious, wherein he attempts to figure out what he's going to do with his life. He's surrounded by this family that just has to be seen to be believed. He's got a genius younger brother and a mom who keeps making the most horrifying family dinners that you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and eventually he meets a, a neighbor for an exchange student and kind of the movie goes from there. What I love about this movie is if you read it on paper, it is such a rote standard 80s high school romantic comedy. But then Savage Steve Holland just takes it and goes in these insane directions that just turn it into something that is unlike almost any movie that was out at the time. You've got Curtis Armstrong as Cusack's best friend who's constantly snorting stuff because he can't get a hold of any real drugs. (laughs) And so they're on a mountain and he's snorting all this snow and he's like, do you know what the street value of this mountain is? And I mean, it just, it, it is so absurd and off the wall that it's, it, it's absolutely hilarious. Does it ever feel like everyone's got more going than you do? Oops. <laughs> that everyone is smart. So you're Al Myers, kid? Yes, I am. You look pretty stupid to me. Thank you. You say the best skier in town just ran off with your girlfriend? Even your younger brother does better than you do? And that nobody even cares? That broke up with me. Oh, that's nice. Well, you might be right. But remember one thing. I haven't even been to New York City. Nobody was ever better off dead. The truth is I can out-ski you any day of the week. Oh, really? Yeah, you want a race, I'll take you on any day, sucker. Go that way, really fast. If something gets in your way, turn. All you need is guts. All right! Now turn! I'm gonna race, I'm gonna lose, and I'm gonna die in that order. Go! And you'll never doubt yourself again. He's skiing on one ski! Better off dead. That's a real shame when folks be throwing away a perfectly good white boy like that. Have you you seen it, Dana? So I don't know what it is with uh, 1985 comedies, but I have not. And and here's the thing. Again, just like Real Genius, so familiar with this movie. And I'm a big John Cusack fan. And this is one of those films that has popped up 
on my radar and I've had abilities to watch it. I mean, at some point, there were some times when I, I'm flipping through YouTube and there's the entire movie on YouTube. And I'm like, and I really need to see this movie, but I haven't. And it's just one of those ones where I'm I'm dying to see it. And after your you know, very brief explanation of the film, after the football game tonight, I will be watching Better Off Dead. So that I've already got some homework. We're, we're, we're into this episode and I've already got some homework to watch. I'm really looking forward to seeing that one. I think if you like it, 3 o'clock high as much as you do, and they're, they're, they are different, but I think you will really like this one. I think it, it kind of vibrates on the same wavelength. So I, I think you'll enjoy it quite a bit. Like I said, huge John Cusack fan. And he's he's got a great body of work. I mean, that extends. I mean, here's a guy that, I mean, what do we define him as? I mean, do we define him as a, as an A-list actor or just the greatest character actor of all time? How do we look at John Cusack? I think now he's down to character actor. There certainly was times in his career where he was 100% uh, absolutely A-list. But I think as time has gone on, he's kind of slid. And, and I think his he's a lot like Brad Pitt in the regard that he's really a character actor, but he was in a leading man's body, you know, especially in the 80s and 90s. He was a very good looking looking dude. And so I think he kept kind of getting put into A-list roles, but he would always bring something interesting to it, something quirky. You know, it's like Con Air. If I remember correctly, it was his idea that he wore sandals with his suit because he's playing this, you know, fairly typical action hero kind of supporting character. But he, he makes it weird. And every role he did, he made it weird. He made it quirky. And so while he had A-list status, I think he definitely has the heart of a character actor. Yeah. And I mean, has he given a bad performance? I'm even looking back at at One Crazy Summer. And as, as ridiculous as that movie is, he's good in it. I mean, he's he's good in everything I can think of. Now, listeners will probably correct us and say, hey, he was in this and he wasn't great. But I'm, I'm hard pressed to find a, a Cusack role that I, I didn't really enjoy. And High Fidelity is just one of my all time favorite films. I mean, that I teetered on putting that on the 10 best list. That's how much I love High Fidelity. High Fidelity is good. There, there are definitely some stay tuned for some further Cusack recommendations later on, you know, in later episodes, because I've got a couple that I think are, are absolutely must watch movies movies from, you know, the time period we're talking about. I will say his recent career, he's kind of done the direct to video take a paycheck, but he also just did a couple of years ago. He was in Love and Mercy, the the Brian Wilson movie, and he's absolutely fantastic in that. So it's still there. I mean, he still has the ability to, to put on great performances. It's just, I think for some of these guys, you know, it's they 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 work and they take the the direct video. I will say even his direct video movies, he's not doing the Bruce Willis sleepwalking through the roles. He's still right. bringing that weird John Cusack quirkiness to it. Gotcha. So I'm excited to watch the movie, and when we do the next uh, when we do Volume Three, I'll that, I'll be excited to talk about it. Perfect. So, so for my second pick, I am going to go. I, when we talked about 1994 Speed, I mentioned that I received that as a VHS Christmas present. And earlier that year, I actually received, like, here's the thing. My parents knew I was obsessed with movies. So if it was a birthday or a special occasion, typically I would get a, uh, a VHS movie. Uh, another movie I received that year was 1994's quiz show. Now, this is a movie that I am obsessed with because it kind of paints a picture of this nation's obsession with quiz shows, something that still goes on to this day. And directed by Robert Redford, starring Ray Fiennes, John Turturro, and Rob Morrow, quiz show examines the first 
and not the last uh, of many scandals that would plague what I would consider sort of the onset of reality TV, where we would have regular people and we would turn them into celebrities and we would build them up and then we would tear them down. And it, it examines the case of the game show 21 and it looks at specifically at uh, two people, Herb Stemple and Charles Van Dorn. It is a fascinating look at both television in the 1950s and how sort of the the legal system or the uh, the congressional system that investigated the scandal. It is a fascinating film and it is so I talk about the set design of Real Genius. I mean Redford's direction and the way that this film is presented, it is I dare say flawless in its execution for presenting this particular time period. Stand by, going to air. Stand by, Phil. Five, Stand by music. Four, Stand by now. Three, two, one. And fade up. Geritol presents the exciting quiz program 21. Give me the name of the explorer who discovered Mozambique. Vasco da Gama. Correct for 10 points. Temple is an underdog. You know, people root for that. It wasn't Herbie terrific. Have you seen the ratings? I'd like you to meet next week's challenger, Charles Van Doren. Oh. How much do they pay instructors up at Columbia? $86 a week. Do you have any idea how much Bozo the Clown makes? Gotta be James J. Braddock. Correct! You have 21! Is this guy a natural or what? He's a natural. <laughs> $20,000! What if we would ask you questions that you know? Well, I think I'd really rather try to beat him honestly. Just an idea. Was that part of the test? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know his name. Halleck, General H.W. Halleck. You have 21! I'm constantly amazed at the facts these guys have at their fingertips. It's been nine weeks now. And you've won how much? $93,000. Sir, I smell something. That little box in your living room is plugged into something crooked. You lose when I tell you to lose. Now I'm supposed to take a dive? You know, you got these crackpots coming out of the woodwork. You don't have a shred of concrete evidence. Young man, I am the president of the National Broadcasting Company. I have you. And why are you the one that's sweating? Let him out, boys. Charles Van Dorn hails from one of the most prominent intellectual families in this country. Dick's on a witch hunt. He thinks 21 is rigged. Is it? You should see the letters I get. Kids are excited about learning. You set a real example for all us boys to look up to. Just sign the statement. Sign the statement, her. Sign the statement. Who cares if it's true, huh? Pick. Dan. If someone offered you all this money, would you do it? No. And I would. Professor, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask for your answer. What are your thoughts on Quiz Show? Quiz Show is actually going to be uh, a movie that I talked about on one of these episodes, so you saved me the trouble. Okay. I, I agree with everything that you said. Uh, I think it is... Uh, 
an exceptionally well put together movie. You know, one of the things about Redford as a director is he's not necessarily the flashiest director, but he's so consistently good behind the camera. And he is just such a consummate professional. All of his movies just fill professional in a way that that a lot of movies, regardless of how good they are, don't. And, and because he's Robert Redford, the casts that he's able to assemble for his movies are also stunning. You know, Rob Morrow, I know a lot of people love Northern Exposure. I liked it too. But Rob Morrow was never better in his career than he is in Quiz Show. John Turturro and Ray Fiennes give, if their careers weren't already so stacked, these would be the best performances that they've ever given. It's just, I mean, those guys are good in almost everything. But if, you know, like Turturro is a perfect example. If all you know him from is getting peed on by Bumblebee and Transformers, please go back and watch Quiz Show and see just how phenomenal he can be when he's given the right material and the right director to work with. And and again, I, I, I so never want to get into spoilers here but there there are a few key moments of this film that are so tense as a viewer and i'll just talk about briefly about you know where where totoro's character herb stemple has essentially been asked to take a dive i mean quiz show is is two people competing against each other the winner continues to go on and on and on and keeps amassing a lot of money and at one point he is he is essentially told by the brass you know your time is up and he's basically he's told that you have to you know get a question wrong now i don't want to get too much into that scene but ultimately the decision is left up to him uh, as to whether or not he's going to quote unquote take the dive and that's an incredibly tense scene and it plays on for for just the right amount of time. And then when the congressional hearings get going, there's also a very interesting scene involving the other character, uh, Van Dorn, and what he decides to do. And I don't want to get that's I'm being as vague as possible about that. The film for a, what I'll call a a talking film that doesn't have any big action set pieces, it gets the viewer incredibly engaged. I agree completely. That that was a thing that that Redford, you know, uh, again, kind of a stay tuned. One of the movies that I'll, uh, I want to talk about at some point on the show is Ordinary People, because I, it's the same thing. Redford had an ability to just take people talking and make it so unbelievably engaging that it feels like you're watching an action movie. It feels like you're watching some tense thriller when you're really not, but you're just so invested in the movie. I I, I remember in 94 just being adamant the quiz show was the best movie of the year. Even with, you know, 94 was a great year for movies, even with Pulp Fiction and stuff coming out. But I, I just was so adamant at the time. And I feel like quiz show is one that's kind of gotten lost to history a little bit. So I'm really glad you brought it up because I do think it's a movie that more people need to revisit and and see because it's we talked a little bit last time about how it's also it's like a few good men it's the type of medium to large budget movie for adults that just isn't being made anymore quiz show could never be made now no major studio would finance it with the money to get that cast i mean martin scorsese if i'm not remembering if i'm Incorrect. Correct me, but Martin Scorsese's got a supporting role in it. Yes. If I'm not. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you're just never going to get a movie put together with that kind of cast and that kind of budget and that kind of talent in today's, you know, movie making landscape. And you talk about 94 and, you know, when we were looking at the the Academy Award nominees for Best Picture, we had, you mentioned Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, 
quiz show. I mean, I mean, I know most were, were really pushing towards Pulp Fiction as being the best picture, but I think it was so revolutionary that I think Oscar voters just weren't ready to anoint that as as the best picture when you look at, you know, the, the trends leading up to that one. But if I was pressed to say which do I think is a, a better film between Forrest Gump and Quiz Show, I think I lean towards Quiz Show quite a bit more. And that's not disrespecting Forrest Gump, but I think I found Quiz Show to be, a, I think, a more compelling film. I agree. I, I'll actually disrespect Forrest Gump. I'm not a Forrest Gump fan, so I don't even think it's a competition. I think Quiz Show is so good and so well put together uh, that it, everybody really should be watching this movie and i kind of wish it was talked about as one of those great 90s movies more often excellent all right perfect so we're on to you for your second pick of the show so my second pick is uh a movie based on one of my favorite writers and he didn't have very good luck with movies for a good portion of his career and then in the mid 90s some things started to turn around and we started seeing really good movies and I, and I think the problem is people just couldn't quite capture his tone his dialogue his interesting offbeat characters but one of the first ones to sort of turn that around was the writer is Elmore Leonard and the movie is 1995's Get Shorty. Okay. Um, because that was really the first movie that felt like an Elmore Leonard movie. Those characters talked like Elmore Leonard characters. They moved like an Elmore Leonard story. Brief synopsis, Without getting into too many spoilers, John Travolta plays a uh, a lone shark named Chili Palmer who has to who loves movies, loves movies. It puts me and Dana to shame as far as how much he loves movies, guys. And he has to go to L.A. to try and recover uh, some money from a uh, David Paymer. Doesn't really matter what he does. And while he's in L.A., he gets involved in the movie industry. And I won't go into any more details other than there's a lot of twists and turns and, and interesting characters. And, and a lot of Elmore Leonard stories always involve everybody kind of wanting the same thing but going about it in different ways and all these different interests and get shorty is really a perfect example of that uh it's directed by barry sonnenfeld and and he really brings the right sensibility to it and this was travolta right after pulp fiction he was actually cast in this before pulp fiction but this is the start of that travolta renaissance that we saw in the in the mid to late 90s where he was just so goddamn good in everything he did and this i actually think might be the best performance of his career he just owns the screen in every scene he's in in this movie uh, and the way he's able to change from this sort of lovable nice guy to chili palmer the lone shark uh and and the way he's able to stay kind of one step ahead of everybody it's just really a lot of fun to watch in a town known for fame wealth and glamour one honest man has come to Hollywood to make a killing. My name's Chili Palmer. Chili's a gangster. Ran a club I used to play at for another gangster back in Miami. How is Momo these days anyway? Dead. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. Doesn't everybody? Yesterday you were a loan shark. Yeah, but I was never that into it. <clears throat> you think the movie business is any different? Ray, look at me. Why don't you take a look at that? You must bring something heavy to the deal. I do. Me. 
I think you ought to turn around and go back to Miami. You're a stuntman, huh? Yeah. You're any good. I mean, he's got no respect for us. Oh! That's something bad for a guy his size. Got a major star interested. Which star? Two-time Academy Award nominee, Martin Weir. He played the mob guy turned snitch in Cyclone. Yeah, one of his best parts. No, well, the best part was when he played the crippled gay guy that climbed Mount Whitney. I guess in your line of work, uh, there's times you have to get kind of rough, huh? Not really. Have you spoken with Mr. Palmer since your husband blew up? Oh, my Leo! It says here you're getting Martin Weir for the part of Love Joy. How are you going to do that? I'm going to take a gun, I'm going to put it to his head, and I'm going to say, sign the papers, Martin, or you're dead. That's it. I wonder, would that work? John Travolta. I think you could be an actor. I know you're acting sometimes, but you don't show it. I thought I was faking. Gene Hackman. Hey, let me help you. Go ahead. I'll suck hard on Rene Russo. Harry's dreaming of a $40 million production. He'll never get off the ground. With a star, he'll never sign with or without my help. And Danny DeVito. Looking at you, I'm having memories of us. And I'm wondering, how did it go wrong? How did it all slip away? Well, it didn't slip away, Martin. You did when you went off with Nikki at my birthday party. Yeah, that mm. was a good party. <sighs> Rough business, this movie business. Don't you puke on my shoes, Harry. I may have to go back to loan sharking just to take a rest. <laughs> Get shoddy. Fade out. Again, agree with everything you're saying there. This was uh, this. I actually remember seeing this one in the theater, and this is. I know this is going to sound vi- like a, a really bad pun, but the best way for me to describe this movie is it is cool. It is very very entertaining, and you want you talk want to talk about a cast of supporting characters: Gene Hackman, Rene Russo, Danny DeVito, Dennis Franz. I mean, Delroy Linden, James Gandolfini. I mean, the list goes on. And it is such an interesting movie that when you start watching it, you really don't know what direction this film is going to go in. But you're happy to be along for the ride the entire time. And you just, every little aspect of it, and again, I'm not going to spoil it, how the how the film ends. Everything about it is just a fantastic film. And if I could, just for a moment, I, I think I've told this story on one or two other podcast episodes that I've done. But the first time I met John Travolta was in 2005. And I'm talking to him at the restaurant that I'm working at. And, you know, we're talking about aviation because he's a huge aviation guy. I just looked at him and I said, so when are we going to get another Chili Palmer film? Because I said right to his face, I said, because that's my favorite character that you've ever portrayed. And he looked at me and goes, well, we got another one coming out this year, uh, this month or next month or something like that. And it was Be Cool, the sequel to it. So I, I always like to point out that I actually had an opportunity to, to tell Travolta how okay. cool he was in Get Shorty. Yeah, no, he was so good in this. And, and, and you're right, he is cool. And, and he makes it, he's a big part of the reason, like you said, you just are happy to be along for the ride. Because you just want to watch this guy. Whatever he's going to do, you want to watch him. You want to follow him. You want to see what he's going to do because it's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting. He's kind of the life of the party without being an obnoxious jackass. He's just, like you said, he's just cool. And I have a special kind of fondness for this movie because, like I said, after this, we started getting Elmore Leonard movies and and, and things that felt, you know, we got 
Jackie Brown. We got Out of Sight. And then the biggest one for me, one of my top five favorite TV shows of all time is Justified. And that is the the sort of the pinnacle of Elmore Leonard uh, on screen, whether it's TV or movies. And I feel like that all got to start with Get Shorty. Get Shorty was the first one. It was a big hit. It was done well. It got good critical reviews and it felt like Leonard. It's it's just a really, I think, important movie if you're an Elmore Leonard fan. That is a that is a great way to trace the lineage of of Leonard. That's you know, I didn't I never I never really even thought about that. Uh, if I could just say a quick word about Justified, I really hope as the years, you know, go on since that show has come off the air that it, it continues to receive the love that it gets because Justified, I live in an era where I binge watch everything. I live in an era where I'm a patient person. You know, there's a new series coming on. I'll wait until it's over. I'll wait till it hits the streaming platforms. Then I'll spend a, a Sunday just kind of burning through it. But with Justified, I mean, all you have to do is watch the opening scene from the very first episode of Justified to understand that this is a a different type of show. And it was one of those ones where I tuned in. I, I don't know if it came out on Tuesday nights or Wednesday nights. I can't remember. But it was I was making a point to turn on FX and watch that show week by week by week, which is incredibly rare for me. That's how much I love that show. It, it was great. I, I have a tendency. I'm like you. I tend to binge. I watched it every week. I also rarely rewatch television shows. Most of the time I watch a TV show and I'm kind of done with it. There's a, just a small select handful that I rewatch. I probably rewatch Justified every year, year and a half. I, I've watched through the entire series at least four times because it is just it's so good. The writing is so good. And there's always... One of the things I like so much about Leonard when he's done well is you can always pick more stuff out. There's more interesting lines. There's more interesting characters and motivations. Um, and Justified just really nails it. I know this isn't a TV podcast, but damn it, if you people haven't seen Justified, really watch that show. I believe it streams on Amazon Prime. Um, it, it's it's totally fantastic. All right. So we're going to get to my third pick now. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, this one was not a critically well-received film. This one did not do great numbers at the box office. But this one, I was inspired by what you said in the first episode where you talked about a comfort movie. I started thinking about what, growing up, what was a movie that I would watch over and over again and just really enjoyed? And this film came out in 1986. This is the same year that Tom Cruise and somebody we've already talked about, Val Kilmer and Anthony Edwards, Kelly McGinnis, starred in one of the biggest films, if not the biggest film of 1986, and that's Top Gun. However, that same year, there was another movie about military aircraft. And of course, I'm talking about 1986's Iron Eagle. Now, this is a movie where the premise is so absolutely absurd, but it's so damn fun. Quick synopsis of the film. Jason Gedrick plays a character by the name of Doug Masters. He is a high school student. His father is a Air Force pilot, and he is shot down in a Middle Eastern country and taken hostage. The beginning of the film, it's about how are they going to rescue his father? Then they realize his father's not going to get rescued. He essentially takes it upon himself, along with Louis Gossett Jr., to commandeer a couple military aircrafts and go rescue his father. Now, I am very much glossing over the, the, the plot of the film there, but I will tell you this. There is a scene about 15 minutes in the film where our main character, Doug Masters, is challenged to a race through a canyon where he's flying a Cessna and the other person is riding a dirt bike. And it is one of the greatest race scenes I've ever seen put on film. That is worth the price of admission alone. 
Doug Masters. He's 18 years old, raised on an airbase. Are you out of your mind? Born to fly, living for the day he'll earn his wings. Suddenly, just when life was going great. Doug, it's your dad. He's been shot down. Davis, hey, it's okay. Colonel, will you please just tell me what's going on? Your country has been warned time and time again. Because they claim a 200-mile limit. We only recognize 12. So when are they going in? Reparation is our due. Don't lie to me. Three days. In three days, they're going to hang him. When the Pentagon is helpless. We're doing all we can. And Washington's hands are tied. We make the laws in this country. There's only one thing to do, and he'll do it with one of the toughest fighter pilots who ever lived, retired Colonel Chappie Sinclair. You know, your dad understands a lot about people's dignity. That's the last kind of person in the world I want to see locked up in some stinking cage somewhere. Do you think with the right plan, it'd be simple to go in and get him? Probably. What's going on? Look, I'm telling you right now, I bet you I can get a plane. Bingo, we're in. Are you wide enough to get me a couple of pilots, too? I've got three times as many hours on that simulator as most pilots flying Falcons on this base right now. Don't test you out on some live targets. He may know how to fly. Now he must learn how to fight. Watch you concentrate. Yeah! All right, I'm ready to go! Everyone told them to sit tight and wait. Heat up from here on out. For them, waiting time is over. Okay. They're going in against the clock. In a pair of borrowed F-16s. One mission. One heart. One soul. Jeffy, I hit it. Now just worry about the pre-makes that got up. Climb! Climb! Academy Award winner, Louis Gossett Jr., Jason Gedrick, Iron Eagle. I'm going to turn it over to you, just your basic thoughts on Iron Eagle, and I'll have some more thoughts in just a moment. I like Iron Eagle. I liked it a lot in 1986 uh, because I was young enough that that I, I don't think I realized. It was one of those movies where I loved I always watched a ton of movies with my parents. That's how I ended up becoming the the movie obsessed person that I am. There was every once in a while there was a movie that they just hated and I just loved. And they would they were so great. They'd grit their teeth and let me watch it and stuff. And Iron Eagle was one. My dad just used to make fun of that movie like you wouldn't believe. And I couldn't figure out, you know, at the age of 10 why. I'm like, it's got planes. There's explosions. I get it now. It's not a great movie, but it is a lot of fun. It is so stupidly sincere and earnest in the story that it is presenting that this kid loves his dad so much that he's willing to do everything he does in the movie. And it really is a lot of fun. The, the air combat scenes are are decent. They can't compete with Top Gun. It probably had a budget of a quarter of Top Guns. I know they had to get the planes from uh, the Israeli military because the U.S. military didn't like the story and wouldn't give them permission to use U.S. planes. That's why all the planes have weird camouflage in them. I think it's a lot of fun. I think if you're in that mid-80s action kind of vibe, I think it's a good Friday night watch. And I will also say that the soundtrack to that movie was in constant rotation for many, many years for me. I still have it on vinyl. Um, I still think that is a, a great 80s movie soundtrack. 
I, and I will say there's a couple points I want to put out. One, for those that were big fans of uh, Bohemian Rhapsody that came out this year and big fans of Queen, Queen does appear on the soundtrack. Now, what I really like what you just said there about the sincerity of the characters in the film. Because, again, without getting into the actual plot of how they're going to rescue the father, the, the, the plan they come up with, the plan they devise, again, I said, so absurd and, and honestly would never happen in reality. But during the film, none of the characters ever go, we can't, this is impossible. We could never do this. There's just always this, like you said, sincerity ab- about the mission they're trying to accomplish. And the movie does a great job of just showing off exactly how each obstacle is challenged one by one, and they manage to clear each obstacle. But again, you take it with the biggest grain of salt as far as this could never happen in real life, but the movie takes itself just serious enough that you have fun while you're along for the ride. Again, Louis Gossett Jr., he is three years out from winning the Academy Award for uh, An Officer and a Gentleman. I love Louis Gossett Jr. He is a fantastic actor, and he is all in on this movie, a 100%. Oh, yeah. He's got no business being in this movie. He's he's so much better than the movie. It's crazy. Like, he brings such a, an earnestness and, and just depth. And obviously, I don't know if his career didn't go the way he went, but he made three more Iron Eagle movies after yeah. this. So either he liked it or they were cutting him big checks or or whatever. But that that probably is what he retired on was Iron Eagle money. So I mean, to, to you know, his credit, he never sleepwalks through any of the Iron Eagle movies. And, and whether you like or don't like the first one, by the time you get to the fourth one, these are not good movies. I have a soft spot for the second one, uh, just because there's some pretty substantial Star Wars uh, homages in there yeah. that, that just make me giggle. But they progressively get bad. Uh, this one, uh, the first one, I think still has a lot of value, has a lot of merit. And and you're right. Uh, Gossett just, he brings it. He brings, he might as well be in an Academy Award drama for all the uh, talent that he's bringing to the table in this movie. I also like Jason Gedrick. He went on to do some really solid TV work. He never quite became a movie star, but he went on to do some very solid television work. Um, it's got Shawnee Smith in it from The Blob and, and Saw. I mean, there's some some good young actors in this movie and they just kind of, uh, they they believe in the movie and that makes us believe in the movie regardless of how utterly ridiculous it is. And I, I, I I'm not saying that as a criticism, but if people do watch it, I want them to understand. I would hope that, you know, you and I know it's ridiculous. It is. And again, I'm just going to come back to that. Uh, you know, just it's, it's basically a pod race, the pod race of episode one, in a sense that this race that Doug Masters gets involved in has nothing to do to drive the plot of the film forward. It is basically, I think, I think uh, Sidney J. Fury, who's the director of the film, and he would go on to follow that movie up with uh, Superman IV, The Quest for Peace. So, you know, we'll talk about his career at a later point. But I think he didn't have enough, his running time wasn't long enough so that maybe they, I'm just hypothesizing here, but they must have concocted this great race between a plane and a dirt bike, which I think is one of my favorite parts of the entire film. So I think it's worth it just to watch that scene. I'm going to turn it over to you for the uh, the final 
selection of the day. So when I think of 80s and 90s, and and you know, just so people know, at some point I am going to start recommending even older movies. I mean, this is the 20th century movie club. It's not the 80s and 90s. So I am going to work back. But there's just some that I really want to talk about that were important to me growing up. And we kind of talked about that's sort of the thesis of the show. When I think of 80s and 90s, Hollywood. The first two names that spring to mind are Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. They epitomized 80s and 90s Hollywood movies. You mentioned Top Gun, Simpson Bruckheimer, uh, Days of Thunder, Crimson Tide. I mean, these guys were blockbuster movies. The first one that I want to recommend was one of their earlier hits uh, and, and a movie that I think really heralded the rise. He had been in uh, another big movie prior to this, but this was really the one where you saw who somebody who was going to become one of the greatest comedic actors of all time. And so I am recommending for my last movie, 1984's Beverly Hills Cop. This is the movie that made Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy. I, I just watched this last weekend in anticipation of this show. And every time I watch this movie, I am so amazed at what a force of nature he is in this goddamn thing. I mean, he just is the plot is a quick synopsis. He plays a Detroit cop. His friend comes to visit him. His friend is murdered. And so Murphy's character, Axel Foley, uh, he finds out his friend was working for this art gallery in Beverly Hills. So he takes some vacation and goes to Beverly Hills to try and solve the murder and runs afoul of the Beverly Hills police and high society and everything like that. Uh, It's a standard cop plot. I mean, it really could have been made by any number of people. And in fact, it almost was. At one point, it was supposed to star Sylvester Stallone, which would have been a radically different movie. What makes it is this hurricane of charisma uh, and personality that is Eddie Murphy that just blows through this entire movie uh, and leaves your jaw on the floor with how good he is in this thing. Eddie Murphy is a Detroit cop (laughs) on vacation in Beverly Hills. I just got off the phone with an inspector Todd in Detroit. He says if you're out here investigating the Tandino murder, you needn't bother coming back. I don't want to take it anymore. For a man who claims to be on vacation, you look a lot like you're on a stakeout. Stakeout? No, no. I'm picnicking. This is like a picnic area. I have to ask you some questions about Michael Tandino. I never been to a cell that had a phone in it. Can I stay for a while? Because I ordered some pizza. We have six witnesses that say you broke in and started tearing up the place, then jumped out the window. May I help you? Yeah. I'm looking for Victor Maitland. I have nothing to say to you. You just got your badges and your guns and you're on the job, right? Make sure we get the right drinks, because if I drink club soda, I'll throw up. You know, this is the cleanest and nicest police car I've ever been in in my life. This thing's nice in my apartment. I just bet you are the pride of your department in Detroit. It seems painfully obvious you haven't the slightest idea who you're dealing with. I don't know what y'all think I am, killing some kind of fool. Hurry up, quicker! Crawl back to your little stone in Detroit before you get squashed. Don't move! 
Cover me. Police! You're all under arrest! You do that again, I'll shoot you myself. Eddie Murphy, Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> What are your thoughts on Beverly Hills Cop, Dana? So it's um, as you're talking about it, I've I can probably say with confidence that this is easily my favorite Eddie Murphy movie, and that is a bold statement to make because he has made some fantastic films. This movie is probably one that I revisit every couple of years, and like you, I'm just amazed at just how damn good this movie is. It is so well executed. It, you mentioned you mentioned that this was a movie that initially had Sylvester Stallone attached to direct, and of course, Stallone, as we all know, is is a is a very good writer. I mean, he wrote Rocky. He 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 writes he writes mo- the majority of the screenplays uh, of most of the films that he appears in. So when you know they were talking about him doing Beverly Hills Cop, he rewrote the script and they decided to go in a different direction. And they ultimately made the script that he made in 1985 or 86's Cobra. So so that movie, the the Beverly Hills Cop version of Sylvester Stallone basically exists. It's just called Cobra, which I don't think ever makes it on my list of the 20th Century Movie Club. But I digress. Eddie Murphy, up until that point, he had done uh, 48 Hours. Which was a, which was a hit, and he did Trading Places, which was a, a another big hit. But I agree with you. This is where we get Eddie Murphy at his absolute best because it's it, it's an action film, but it is so fucking funny. It's kind of amazing because every time I rewatch this film, one of the things that just amazes me about the film is I think it could be released today as is, and I think it would be just a big just as big of a hit. But unfortunately, what what happens now is. We're never going to see a movie like this released today because this was a big budget film that was R-rated as all can be. And studios today, unless unless you're Deadpool, you're not getting a big budget R-rated film. So it, it's really a, it's a product of its time, but it, it makes me very nostalgic for that time. Because it is such a damn good movie. No, I agree. And and this is this is what Simpson and Bruckheimer did. You know, they made these kind of movies and and not all of their movies were good. In fact, quite a few of them were outright bad. But I do still miss them. I miss the type of movies that they made. Uh, and the, the thing I was going to say, you mentioned 48 Hours and Trading Places. Those were both huge hits. Murphy's great in them. What I think sets Beverly Hills Cop apart is this is the first time it was all him. Yeah. 48 hours he's playing off Nick Nolte, trading places, he's playing off Dan Aykroyd. He's got the supporting cast. You got John Ashton, you got you got Judge Reinhold, you got Ronnie Cox, but really this movie is 100% on his shoulders and he just knocks it out of the fucking park scene after scene in this movie. And and doing a little research on it, so many of those scenes, because the script was such a mess, it had gone through so many rewrites, that so many of those scenes were him improving. He just was making stuff up on the fly, which really tells you how talented he, I was going to say was, he's still around, but how much his game was on point in the 80s, as far as his ability to just riff and improvise and make these connections and these jokes and these things that, that really are just hilarious. And and I think you're right. You could use that movie today. The other thing, you know, you said this was a big budget R-rated movie. It wouldn't get made. The other thing that I think would be different is I just, Eddie Murphy's a once in a lifetime generational talent. I'm not sure that you 
have an actor today that could necessarily do what he did. That role is Axel Foley is so uniquely Eddie Murphy that I'm not sure that there's anybody working today that could capture that that fire that he brought to the table. You mentioned that he um, improvised a lot of scenes, and there's one in particular that I was watching some behind the scenes about the film when I had the DVD and had the, the making of. And there's the scene after they take down the people, after they take down the, the robbers at the strip club, and they're all back at the police station, and Axel gives the story about, you know, how Taggart and Rosewood were essential they were the ones responsible for stopping the robbery. And he goes into this whole speech and he, he calls them super cops. Now, if you watch John Ashton in that scene, he puts his hands to his eyes and looks down. Now, the reason he does that is because no matter how many times they shot that scene, he couldn't keep it together because it was being improv and he didn't know what Eddie Murphy was going to say. And so I'm just that just touches on what you were saying, because even they left that scene in the film because it was the best scene that they were able to work with because he, like you said, improvised so much. And I just start thinking about the movie and I just start thinking about everything when he's trying to check into the hotel to yeah. I mean, everything about the film is just hilarious. And I, again, when you said last week that if you only watch one movie of the six that we recommend it, you said, make sure it's sneakers. I'm going to say that about Beverly Hills Cop today. I'm going to say that if you're listening and you haven't seen any of the films that we're talking about, I want you to put Beverly Hills Cop at the top of that list. And Mike said it, you said it perfectly. Once in a lifetime character. I, I, I can't agree with that more. I mean, he once in a lifetime actor, once in a generation comedian, and his performance is fantastic in the film. I'm, I'm gushing. I'm sorry. I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I'm, I'm gushing over this film. That's how much I love it. it. It's hard not to. I mean, I'm with you. I watch this once every year or two, and it's just, it never fails to make me laugh. It never fails to, to just, it, and just even talking about it, I was sitting here kind of having to do a John Ashton thing because just talking about the super cop scene was making me want to laugh again. And so I I kind of had to like bite my tongue a little bit because it's just and it's just so entertaining. It, it It's it, the type of entertaining movie that Hollywood does when the, the blockbuster machine is working well. It's just entertaining. You will. It, it, it's relatively short. I think it's about an hour and 45 minutes. It doesn't waste time. It gets in and out and it will just keep you happy. For that entire hour and 45 minutes that you're watching it. So I, I'm going to concur with you. If you watch, I know it's my recommendation, so it feels a bit ostentatious to say this. But if you only watch one of the movies this week, this is the one that I would recommend as well. I think this is the one that will bring you the most joy and happiness while you're watching it. Outstanding. All right. So in wrapping up this episode... There was only one film that I have not seen, and that's Better Off Dead, which I'm I'm already written down that's on the list today. So that is one that we're going to talk about when we do our next episode. Listeners, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you thought about our recommendations, whether you agreed with them or disagreed with them. So you can tweet us at Dana Buckler Show. You can email us at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. Uh, Mike, where can they reach you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter at Hibachi Justice. Another thing I want to mention to the listeners is if you've got some recommendations for us for a movie that came out prior to the year 2000, again, tweet us, email us, let us know, and I'll, I'll of course, read those tweets and I'll read those emails on the show. 
All right. So, Mike, thanks so much for being on the 20th Century Movie Club. Looking forward to recording the next episode. Me as well. Thank you, Dana. All right. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.